All flesh will rise and we shall be with God in heaven eternally. My dear friends, what a joy that is, fellow heirs of the message of our Holy Trinity, our Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, I feel kind of bad that back in the year 2000, I did such a lame job at organizing St. Marcus's 125th anniversary. I got a lot of excuses for it, but really there's no excuse. That was a significant moment, and we did not have, we had, we had a small little potluck dinner or something, but we didn't have uh, a new anniversary book. There was not a big historical display of pictures. Uh, we just were kind of busy. I was the only pastor back then. We had not yet gotten a second pastor. Time of Grace was just starting, and I was getting uh, consumed with getting that launched. We had a building project underway. We had to raise five and a half million dollars, as it turned out in the end, to build this first piece of the building, and there was no mission advancement at that time. We also were just getting ready for the first time ever to have a principal of our school who was not teaching all day. Can you imagine how hard it is to run a school when you're consumed with managing a seventh and eighth grade classroom? So those are all my lame excuses. But we're going to do it better this time. I'm, I'm saying that not to whine. If you all want to say wah, wah, wah all at once, you can all do that, wah, wah, wah. If you, I'm saying that to get us more juiced for 2025, because that'll be our 150th birthday, and that's a big deal. We're going to make a big deal out of that year. It, it's a miracle that St. Marcus got started. It's a miracle we survived when the realities of large urban cities have been extremely hard on all Christian churches and have pounded the stuffings out of Lutheran churches wherever we are found. But here we are. So we, we need to make sure that that year doesn't slide by. But having said that, 150 years kind of pales by comparison with the fact that 2025 is going to be the 1,700th anniversary of the Nicene Creed. Something that you and I will say, you know, when we're having uh, the full meal, I call it, when we have worship with the full meal. The, today was worship light. Uh, it's, a, it's for a hot summer Sunday. This is, um, this is a nice little snack. But when we do the full meal, the Nicene Creed is the third one of the fixed poems or songs. It's usually spoken today, but there uh, sometimes in more formal worship settings, the creed is sung. In fact, we just finished singing it. Uh, we sang a metrical version of the Nicene Creed, Martin Luther's amazing poem. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. It sounded a little creepy and melancholy, perhaps. That's because it's based on plain chant. And you were really brave. I know that style of music is not everybody's first thing, and you're never going to hear it on Caleb. But uh, it was a magnificent feat to take the Nicene Creed and put it into meter and put it into three stanzas, one for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, so it's, it's a, a wonderful song. But I want to talk to you today and do a deep dive on that third part of the, of the, big, the big dinner, the formal dinner, the credo, and talk to you about the concept of where it came from. You know, the Christian church 
was blessed by the Lord as your life is blessed by the Lord, sometimes by spoiling you with giving you lots of things. And sometimes he blesses you by taking things away. Sometimes by making you feel great and sometimes by squeezing on you and making you sweat. And the early Christian church got it both ways. But I'll tell you, when they had to sweat, it was terribly hard. For 300 years, they were under stress. Right away out of the gate from the hostile uh, Jewish people who surrounded them, the very people who led the assault on Christ himself were the ones who executed Stephen and uh, initiated, unleashed a persecution so severe, Jerusalem emptied out of all the believers. Then the Romans took over, and for the next 300 years, the Roman government either ignored Christians or had, uh, had pockets of a bitter hostility where, for instance, the emperor wrote once to all the regional governors, the Christians have no civil rights. You may do with them whatever you think appropriate. You could confiscate their property. You could arrest them without charges, no habeas corpus. You could hold them without a trial. You could, in other words, uh, strip away all their human rights and just treat them as though they were enemies of the state. Wow. And sometimes when it was convenient, the emperors would do that and sometimes the regional governors unleashed regional persecutions. But many Christians were imprisoned and many lost their lives in those first 300 years. And the worst was at the end. The emperor Diocletian found it politically helpful to blame Christians for all the stresses the empire was going through and declared open season on them and tried to force them to acknowledge the historic Roman gods and goddesses. He blamed them, he blamed the Christians for not worshiping the gods and goddesses enough and draining off their worship, which of course they were definitely trying to do. But he thought that was causing weakness in the empire. And so he, un he said there was open season on the Christians. So in the 290s, it was the worst. It was just terrible. And then everything changed. One of the associate emperors, there were actually four at one time. There was like president and vice president, president and vice president of the two halves of the empire. Uh, you can read up on this if you're really interested, but there were sort of like two co-emperors uh, side by side and then two assistant emperors. And one of those assistant emperors in the West was named Constantine. And there was constant instability and he ended up having to fight one after the other, after the other three, and became the supreme emperor over all. And he joined the two halves together again and picked a spot right in the middle where he would build his new capital. So his name was Constantine, right? So he modestly decided to name it Constantine City. It sounded like a good idea at the time. You maybe have heard of it as Constantinople. Today, city is still exists because it's such a fabulous strategic location. Today, it's known as what? Istanbul. Very good. A couple people get extra coffee and um, we'll buy some donuts so you can be rewarded. Istanbul. It is the largest city in Turkey today. It's very strategic, right on the, the waterway that connects the Black Sea with the Mediterranean, so you monitor all the sea traffic. It is the overland bridge between Europe and Asia, all the trade goes back and forth, and there it sits, right there. 
right in the middle. Constantine consolidates the emperor, gets rid of Diocletian, who was that vicious persecutor, and Maximian, his successor, was just as bad. In 313, issues the Edict of Milan that you may now worship whatever gods you want. There, be, there was an edict of freedom of religion. Wow, changed abruptly, like night and day, bang. All of a sudden, you did not have to fear for your life, family, and property. Then, as if that isn't enough, he becomes a Christian, or at least becomes enough of one that he begins to do favorable things for the Christians. So talk about God sometimes blessing you with prosperity, sometimes with hardship. They went from hardship to prosperity. In fact, Constantine ushered in a trend that was going to result about 60 years later in Christianity being named the official religion of the Roman Empire. What? All of a sudden, it was now open season on the pagans. And the emperors uh, gave their blessing either to closing down the pagan temples or to converting them into Christian churches. So now it was the priests and priestesses that were on the run. And that was both a blessing and a curse also. Sometimes Christians didn't do too well with prosperity and they got too much power and it went to their heads. But it was, it was a fun change of pace. If you had to live in the two systems, you much rather would have had the days of when you were being left alone. Well, the devil never sleeps, the devil never quits, and the devil thought he can't stand this, this new situation, so he's going to attack in a different way. Since he could not any longer attack the Christian church by, uh, by persecution, he's now going to attack them by twisting up the key teachings of the faith and get them to think they're believers, but in fact, uh, hollow out the content of the key beliefs of who is God and who is our Savior Jesus and what did he do for us. So here's what Satan did. He spoke and whispered some lies to a church leader, not a priest or pastor or bishop, but one of the deacons who was down in Egypt. Uh, talk about walking like an Egyptian. This man named, his name was Arius, and the walk that he wanted people to walk was to use more logic instead of just going with the Bible because the Bible was too full of paradoxes and it drove him nuts. So he tried to help God by resolving logically what basically cannot be resolved. You might call that trying to unscrew the inscrutable. How many times have I gone on one of my little rants about paradoxes? A hundred at least. If you can't handle paradox, you'll make a terrible Lutheran. Frankly, you won't enjoy being a Christian too much either. The Bible is hip deep in them. You can't swing a dead cat in the Bible without hitting a paradox. A paradox means em embracing two things that seem like contradictions, but they're both true. And if you try to help God along by watering one down and like, like fixing you're going to destroy an important truth. I look at it, uh, when I was a kid, I used to like, in summer, like, like to read books swinging in a hammock. I'll tell you what, you need how many trees for a hammock to work? Got to have two or more. You cannot have one tree to sleep in a hammock. 
the tension between them is what keeps you uh, swinging in the summer breezes back and forth in the shade. A paradox, uh, and Martin Luther was good at this, that's one of many reasons I love being Lutheran. Luther taught us how to not fight the paradoxes, just embrace them. You don't have to understand. God didn't tell you about them for you to understand. He told you about them to believe, to see into a little bit of his world. He'll explain it later, or maybe later you won't need explanation. It'll all just make sense. But for now, things like law and gospel seem like so, such contradictions. In God's law, he says that he hates sin and frankly hates the sinners too. He is the unrelenting, super angry judge of all evil, starting with Satan, including the demons who have followed his rebellion and all of the human race who follow Satan. Simultaneously, he says, I love people. I love them with a passion. And through the blood of my son, I've forgiven the world. Those are contradictions. How can God both hate and judge people and love and forgive them simultaneously? Don't argue with that. If you try to fix it, you're going to wreck it. Just embrace it. Just hug it. This is who our God is. Unbelievably severe law, unbelievably merciful gospel. And they are twins. Happily in Christ, the gospel is last word. And mercy trumps judgment. The very nature of God himself is a puzzle. The Trinity is insoluble. Mathematically, three cannot be one. In God's divine philosophy, three are one and one are three. There are not three gods, but just one, expressing himself in three persons. Three intelligences, three wills, three separate minds, and yet one mind. I am not telling you this to make it any easier to understand. I'm just simply saying this is something for you to embrace. But Arius said, I can't handle that. This thing about the paradox of Christ's divine nature and human nature cannot exist because there was a time when he was not human and then there was a time when he was human. He is the be only begotten son of his father. So there must have been a time to be, be to be begotten means there was a time when he didn't exist. So he, by definition, has to be younger and smaller than his father. The greater who sires the younger must be greater. Doesn't that sound kind of logical? I am allegedly the sire. I have sired four children. Uh, the Bible word for that is begetting. I have four children begotten of me. That's, that's a poetic word to refer to the male contribution to the birth of a human being. There was a time when my children did not exist, but I did. So in a sense, I'm greater than there because I'm older. I existed before they did. If the Father existed before Christ, his divinity must be on a lesser level because he doesn't go back as far. So he's not eternal back in eternity with the Father. This Doesn't that make sense? That's logical, isn't it? Except it, it eviscerates the divinity of Christ. What you end up with is a junior God or an assistant God or an associate God who frankly then is not God at all. 
And some people started finding Arius believable. Now here's the funny thing. For the first time ever, the emperor now is following this conflict and said, this is no good. We got to get this resolved. I'm not a theologian and I am not going to be in these discussions. But he opened up the treasury of the empire for food and travel and lodging to bring all of the leaders of the Christian church together in the year 325. So in just a couple of years, it'll be 1,700 years ago. There were lay workers, there were part-timers with assistant-type ministries. They were called the deacons. There were priests who were the pastors of the local congregations. Then there were overseers who were called bishops. We would call them a district president. And then there were kind of super bishops. They were called the patriarchs. One was in Egypt, in Alexandria. One was in Jerusalem. One was in Antioch, in Syria. One was in Constantinople, and one was in Rome. Those were the patriarchs of the ancient church. And he said, I, uh, Constantine told his, the nearest bishop to him, Hosius, he said, I want you to bring them all. There must have been 1,000 or 1,200 or so bishops. They actually managed to get 300. Uh, and and he, he said, let's do it in a central location where everybody from Europe, uh, northern, the Asia, like Arab Asia and Africa can all come together. So let's do it. Uh, we got great banquet facilities in Nicaea. See, Constantinople probably wasn't yet fully built up yet at this time to be the immense city it was going to be later. Nicaea maybe had better facilities. Said, So let's go about an hour's travel away as the city of Nicaea. Let's have it there. So they had this huge uh, conference and they really hammered it out. They did about eight or ten other major things. But this wasn't like flying in for two days of meetings then done. They were there for like half a year, week after week, month after month, and really hammered on this stuff until they got it figured out. And Constantine funded it all. Now initially, some of the Orthodox teachers had a kind of bad reputation because, you know, you might have had a teacher in school that you knew was teaching good stuff, but he was kind of a jerk or she was so crabby all the time. Nobody liked her. And but then as you think about it later, you thought, yeah, it's probably good I had her because she was, she was good at it. I just didn't like her style. And initially, some of the people promoting the Orthodox point of view had a, maybe not a very nice bedside manner and not everybody liked him. So initially, the Arian point of view of denying the divinity of Christ looked like it was going to prevail. But then the tide turned. And by the time they came to the end of the discussions, and they had prepared a document affirming what you and I have as the Apostles' Creed, as the Nicene Creed. Of those 300 bishops, 298 signed it. Only two wouldn't. This is an incredible miracle. Wow, that almost never happens. People are so argumentative and so stubborn, they never yield on anything. But the majority of people who had hazy, foggy notions yielded, and they allowed this document now to speak for them. Hooray! Unbelievable! What a win for Jesus! They didn't execute Arius. He and the two bishops were exiled. That's good news and bad news. The good news is, within the Roman Empire, the Orthodox point of view prevailed, and the Nicene Creed 
became the dominant expression of the faith to summarize what we stand for and tell the newbies what to expect if you're going to be part of this Christian thing. The bad news is Arius was still alive, and he and those other two bishops, now outside the empire, couldn't stop yapping about it, made other converts, and guess what happened? These barbarian tribes who were hammering at the western half of the empire, the Latin half, and eventually uh, smashed down the gates and invaded. The Goths, the Visigoths, the Lombards, the Huns, and the Vandals. One by one, they became Christianized. Is that good or bad? Well, it's good, right? But they all became Aryan Christians. What? We thought Arianism was snuffed out. No, it wasn't. Now the, the new invaders are Aryan Christians, and so they had to wrestle with this for 200 more years. Finally, they squished it out and pushed it way to the extreme, so that today, among all the people who claim to be part of the Christian family, there's only a few uh, peculiar sects around the periphery who are still Unitarians, who deny the Trinity and deny the two natures of Christ. So by and large, the Nicene theology, Nicene Christianity survived. And every time you and I say it, we celebrate that triumph and have a way to tell ourselves and the world what it is that we believe in. I will guarantee this to you anytime you're at St. Marcus and you are going to confess your faith, you're going to testify what it is you believe in, you will have to do it on your feet. So I want you to say the first article of the Nicene Creed with me now. Please rise. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Thank you. Please be seated. A little liturgical aerobics here. Get the blood pumping, get some respiration. You've said this a hundred times. Maybe you've said it 500 times. If you're getting onto geezer-level Christianity, like me, you might have said it a thousand times or maybe thousands of times. But I hope you don't ever pass over these words without a little bit of your jaw dropping and going, wow, this is a daring and bold and contrarian point of view to take today. You are going up the down escalator to say something like this. This is radical. You know why? You have, first of all, asserted that God is one, in, one um, God with three persons. You've addressed the Father. We believe in you, God our Father. You have confessed that he is almighty. There are no limitations to his wisdom, power, and love, and that he is the maker of everything. What you can see and what you can't see. Not only has God made all the physical stuff, but he made the invisible stuff too, like the angels. You can't see them, but they're his creatures as well. Radiation, you can't see it. You can measure it, but you can't see it. Your eyes do not register on, for those waves. He made gravity. Not just a good idea, it's the law. Can't see it, but it keeps your feet stuck on the ground, doesn't it? 
he made what you cannot see as well. The weak force, if you want to talk to uh, science nerds, they'll go on and on and on about the strong force and the weak force, those, those things you cannot see. But God made those things as well. They hold our world together so we don't simply dissolve and drift off. Amazing. And think how going up the down escalator this is. Every time you say the Nicene Creed, you are saying to Charles Darwin, you're an idiot. You have just tried to chew the, a huge chunk of the Bible's message right out of it. If Darwin is right, and the world is many millions or billions, Darwin didn't have the, the nerve to say what people say today of how many billions of years the earth has been under self-formation. Darwin was the first major large-scale denier of intelligent design and execution by a divine being. And he started small and in fact felt kind of sheepish because he knew that he was just done a big part to hollow out the message of Christianity like a pumpkin so that there'd be nothing inside. If Darwin was right, Genesis 1 through 11 never happened. If, Gen if Darwin is right, there was no temptation. There was no fall of the demons. There was no Adam and Eve fall. There was no first murder. There was no, there's no explanation for how evil has gotten so deeply and universally in everybody. Every time you say this, you are saying to Darwin, you're an idiot because we believe in a father who made the world. Everything you can see and everything you can't, including and especially the people. You are also saying a message that needs to be said in a world full of people who are depressed, hate their lives, can't find any purpose or meaning, and are basically miserable with self-loathing. You can say to people like that, you are a beautiful piece of divine design. You were made for a purpose. You belong to your designer who longs to be reconciled and reunited with you. And through the blood of your Savior, you can be reconnected. You can tell people you're important and you're a somebody. You're not just another speck of dust. Joni Mitchell sang in her song, Muck's Duck, we are, we are stardust. No, you're not. You are not stardust. You are God's estranged child whom he longs to be reunited with. Let's say the second article together. Please rise. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became fully human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory 
to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Good job. Please be seated. This article is the big bulk of the Nicene Creed, and you can tell because this is the powerful blasts of artillery fire from the Word against Arius and all his uh, self-made notions, uh, basically dumbing down the work and person of Jesus Christ and eviscerating the concept of the Trinity. Take a look at what you've read here. These phrases have there's a point to these. Jesus isn't younger than his father. He's co-eternal with his father. He's begotten, but he's eternally begotten. You're going to say, that's a contradiction. And I'm going to say to you, paradox time, what do you do when you hit a paradox? Hug them both. Which is true? Is Jesus begotten or eternal? The answer is yes. Hug them both. God doesn't expect you to understand how that could be. He just invites you to believe it. Somehow the relationship Scripture describes is that Christ Jesus has always been the Son of his Father. And so the parallels between him and his Father and my three sons and me limps. It, it's only partially helpful because my boys are younger than I am, but Jesus is not younger than his father. Okay? There it is. Leave it be and just hug it close to you because anything else diminishes Jesus to the point where eventually he gets fired from the Trinity and becomes just another cool guy. He's eternally begotten. He is God from God. Fully God begotten of God himself. He's light and true God from true God. He is not made. He is not part of creation. Arius taught that Jesus was part of creation. No, he wasn't. He's God from God. His human flesh was not his beginning. That was just his absorption of humanity into the divine nature. That also is a stupendous puzzle, and you will never understand it. Don't try. Just hug it. He's fully human so that he can be you. He's fully God so that his blood is big enough and powerful enough to wash a stained, dirty sinner like you completely clean as his gift. Just hug it. He was not made. He was begotten. He's one with the Father. He's not something that the Father spun off, like a big corporation will spin off a subsidiary. He's of one being with the Father from all eternity to all eternity. The rest of it goes through the steps from Philippians 2. You know these very well. These, this is also the part of the Nicene Creed that's most like the Apostles' Creed. Um, there is one interesting difference. Uh, Nicene is a little bit longer. You notice also the Apostles' Creed says, I believe, and the Nicene Creed says, we believe. There's a difference. The Apostles' Creed was a baptism creed. It's what you would say to show you were ready to be baptized if you were coming as an adult. The Nicene Creed is a joint confession by a group. It 
it works best in a group, and it was so powerful, it very soon worked its way into the public liturgies, the public worship services of the Western Church in Europe. The Eastern Orthodox churches use it a lot, but not quite as much as the Western Church ended up doing. And there's a key phrase in here, why did Jesus do all this stuff? It was not for his own benefit primarily. Three times the Nicene Creed tells you how valuable you are to God, how precious you are, how important you are, how worthy of sacrifice, pain, suffering, and giving you are, how strongly God wants you back. Three times it says, for us. It says it again, for our salvation, he came down from heaven. For our sake, three times now, bam, bam, bam. Our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. When you say this second article of the creed, you can just feel, I am somebody to God. He likes me and wants me, and I matter. My life is not an aimless, aimless drift. I'm not a speck of stardust. I'm not just another animal. I am somebody to my God because Christ went through all that. Why? For me, for us. And he will come again. Let's read the third article. Please rise. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please be seated. The third article also does the same thing for the Spirit as for Christ. First of all, who is he and what did he do? Who is he? He's in unity with the Father and the Son, and he is worshipped and glorified and now proceeds from them. What does he do? Three major works of the Spirit are in this creed. Every time you say this creed, say, thank you, Spirit, thank you, Spirit, thank you, Spirit, because you need them. You would be a heathen slug if you had not been touched by the Spirit of the Lord. First thing he did, he spoke through the prophets. The Spirit is the word giver. You have a Bible and you have human language where God's truths can be communicated to you in a way you get thanks to the Spirit. Number two, he is the giver of life. He converts you. Without the Spirit, you would read the Bible and say, what gibberish. How ridiculous is all of this? What unbelievable claptrap. Throw it away, close the book, and never touch it again. But something happened when you collided with the Word of God at some point in your life. Might have been six months ago, or six years ago, or 60 years ago, but the Spirit of the Lord somehow got the lights on in your attic. And now, instead of the Bible looking ridiculous to you, you say, thank you, Jesus. You died for me. Thank you, Jesus. He's the giver of life. Without the conversion he brings about, you would stay lost. Thirdly, we believe in the Christian and apostolic church. 
The Holy Spirit is the gatherer and collector. When you become a Christian, you not only bond with Jesus, you're connected, you acquire. It's like getting married. When, you know, ever hear the old story, uh, when you're getting married, advice given to the fiancé is, hey, just remember, you're not only marrying her, you're marrying her family. And that might either be really good news or you might roll your eyes and really groan like, oh, brother. But isn't it true? People you've been mar- who've been married 20 years or longer, whether you like it or not, you get the whole zoo and you might as well just choose to figure out how to like it. Guess what? When you become a Jesus girl or a Jesus boy, you got relatives. Look around you. These are your relatives. Mostly really good news. Okay, we're sinners. We're a little lame. We're a little annoying. But we are bonded together with each other. You have a posse in life. You are not alone. That's the Spirit's work. And it is an apostolic church linking us zipping us back in time like a, like a speed link, like a lightning bolt to the apostolic era that you can dial in to the good news of the gospel as it is revealed 2,000 years ago. And this 1,700-year-old creed celebrates that amazing thing. All right, let's wrap this up. So what? I got four things to leave you with today. Why do we say this creed? What good is it? Who's listening? What's it? Who's our audience when you mouth these words? Our audience number one is God. You are saying back to him. It thrills him when you do it because you're saying back to him what he first said to you. You show that you get it. Not maybe that you understand it, but you know what it is that he needs you to believe and embrace. He loves the fact that it's full of worshipful ideas. You're worshiping him when you say this amazing creed. Second, you are talking to your posse. It is a lonely business being a Christian, and Satan loves to pick off the strays. When you are together with a group, there is strength in numbers. It's so important for you not only to dial into the word. That's why being here in worship is ten times better than watching it on, online, which is good, which is better than nothing. But this is better than that because when you say the creed, you're saying it to each other to, so you don't feel like I'm the only one, like this is kind of strange stuff, I'm the only one who believes this. No, you're not the only one. There's an army. You've got a posse of people who believe what you believe and we mutually reinforce each other. Thirdly, you send a powerful message that when this congregation endorses the Nicene Creed, people all over the world know what the core of our faith is. It is an immediate advertisement of where we stand and what we think and believe about God. It also is ecumenical in the best way, meaning that it reminds us that there is an army of people who maybe aren't Wells or aren't even Lutheran, but they, their loyalty is behind these concepts. And we, anybody who believes what the Nicene Creed says is going to be in heaven with us. And it reminds us there is an army of people, not only worldwide, but in past centuries and in the centuries to come, if the world lasts that long. It, there's a great big army of people. And this is an ecumenical creed tying us together with that whole group. Last you're saying it to yourself. First of all, to help you know how to think straight, to give you reminders 
to what makes you think that God likes you and that you're going to heaven, but also to help tune you up to give you tight, short little summaries of the faith so that you won't be tongue-tied when you have a chance to share what it is you believe in. The Bible is 1,500 pages of really long and complex stories, but when you have to explain what it is you believe in to somebody who doesn't know, your two friends, the Apostles and Nicene Creed, will help you give them the cliff notes so that they will get it. Heavenly Father, thank you for making us. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying and rising for us. Spirit, thank you for speaking to us and converting us and baptizing us for the forgiveness of our sins. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.